So here's um, kind of, let me give you just like a brief kind of overview of where we're going in the next couple of weeks. In about three weeks, we're going to start a series in the book of Exodus, and that series will take us uh, pretty much up until Advent. Um, but for this week and next week, we have these kind of standalone gaps, and that's where we as pastors who are leading get to kind of really share with you some things that are on our heart that we think would be um, important for our congregation. And so I get to share this morning, and I'm going to talk about, um, actually it's a, it's a topic we discussed in 710, but it's around this idea of shame and how do we how do we maneuver how do how does that what do we do about that in our in our life um, and the power of shame in your life and what's very interesting is that there is a tremendous amount of research that's being done on this subject especially if you if you've heard of someone named Brene Brown if not I just sent you on a YouTube wormhole that you'll never get out of but um, she's a researcher from the University of Texas has done some TED talks really doing a lot of great work but what's very interesting about this research that's being done on this topic of shame is that you're finding that it really the science behind it backs up um, about 2,000 years of ancient wisdom that's found in the scriptures. And that's what I love about the Bible. It's not just this book that's irrelevant and disconnected from the human experience, but it's incredibly relevant. Um, and, it, and, it, and it describes for us what the world is like, what our life is like. And we're going to see that uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, we're going to put the text up on the screen so that you can follow along. There's a couple places we're going to go in the Bible today, but we're going to kind of start here. And I won't ask you to turn to the other places, but if you take notes on your phone or if you have something to write with, it'd be great to write some of these verses down. That way you can go back and you can look at them on your own during the week and just kind of refresh what maybe what God has to say to you. But we're going to start in Genesis um, chapter 3. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Genesis is a, is a book of where it all starts, where the, where the world starts. In Genesis chapter 1, um, we see at the very beginning the creation of all things. And there's this refrain that goes back and forth where God made and then God says, that's good. God made, that's good. God made, that's good. It kind of goes back and forth. In Genesis chapter 2, it slows down a little bit and it focuses on, on the humans. And so God, out of the, the, the dirt, creates first man. His name is Adam. Um, and it's the first place um, in this kind of Genesis, this creation account, where we see uh, that God says, well, that's not so good. And it's that Adam is there all alone. And there's this I think kind of comical scene where Adam is, he's kind of all alone and God says, well, that's not very good, but he brings all the animals by and he's like, hey, name the animals. What do you want to call that one? That's a horse. What about that? That's a tiger, giraffe. Is this fun? Is this good for you, Adam? And he's like, no, I kind of need something more. And so um, God puts Adam in a, in a deep sleep and takes one of his ribs and out of that rib creates Eve. And uh, Adam sees her and he goes, whoa, man, whoa, man. When I, when I was in Alaska, I had a chance to teach at uh, Lake Clark Bible Church there, and it's so awkward, um, you know, teaching to people that you don't really know when they don't laugh at your jokes, so it's nice to be back with people I know and love who um, also don't laugh at my jokes. It's great. So... There's Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and God creates uh, this, this man and woman for relationship with one another, for relationship with creation, for relationship with him. And God says to them, I want you to enjoy me, I want you to enjoy what I've made. One stipulation, there's a certain tree you're not to eat of. And that's the one thing that humans can't stand, is when someone tells them they can't do something. Uh, and that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is a serpent speaking to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me. Sound familiar, guys? Um, She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And the serpent's like, yeah, that was me. I did it. Let's pray, and let's just ask God to help us with this in our brief time together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for just your constant goodness towards us and your kindness. God, um, your provision God, this is a day that you've created. You tell us that you give us these days that we would rejoice and be glad in it. And so, Father, we um, are full of gratitude and thankfulness just for the many things that you give us. But God, this morning, um, our hearts are also heavy. There are things in this life and in this world, God, that cause us to lament and to weep. God, I think of communities like El Paso and Dayton. God, where darkness and evil run rampant, but God, we are not without hope because, God, we know that you have overcome the world. And we, God, we know that you are the light that has come into the world and darkness will not and has not overcome it. So, Father, our hearts are heavy. Our prayers go to them. I pray for peace and reconciliation. God, I I believe in the promise that you write in Psalm 34, God, that you are close to the brokenhearted, God, that you are near those who are crushed in spirit. And so, Father, I pray that um, the people in those communities that have suffered great loss, God, would experience you today as shepherd, as father, as the wonderful counselor, as the prince of peace that you are. Holy Spirit, in our time together, I pray that you would move with freedom, and I pray, God, that you would control me and my mind and my mouth and that you would help us, God, that truly the scripture would come alive to us this morning, and God, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would leave with something to do, God, and that would leave to a transformed life and mind and heart about who you are. Jesus, this is always and only about you and your fame, and I love you. It's in your name I pray, amen. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about shame, it's, it's 
deeply personal uh, to me just in the past year, year and a half, the experiences that I feel like God's really taken me through and shown me. But shame is a, is a, is a powerful force in our lives for many of us. It, it makes us feel like, like we're just not worthy, like we are damaged beyond repair, like, like we are, like we're a fraud, like we're a fake, and we have to create a different person that we present to the world, either in real life or online, that we can't really be who we truly are in front of other people. It's, it's that feeling that puts us in this state of being less, and ultimately we're like Adam and Eve. We're, we're hiding in the garden from God, and we try to hide from other people, and we hide behind filters and layers and maybe even our own accomplishments so that no one will fully know what we've done or even what's been done to us. For a lot of us, shame really dominates our story, and it keeps us chained to things that happened in the past. We, we, we see in Genesis that God created the earth, and he put Adam and Eve in it. Um, there's a very interesting de- description at the end of chapter 2. Uh, it, it says that they were both naked, and they had no shame. It's, a, it's an interesting description of paradise. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, it's lush, there's plants and animals everywhere, but the ultimate description that's assigned to it is that there is no shame in that place. But Adam and Eve, they make disastrous, sinful choices with massive consequences, and them, along with all creation, fall apart as a result of their choices. And guilt and shame into the story of their lives and enter into the story of our lives. One day, they're communing with God, they're going on walks in the cool of the day, and next day, they are hiding out, trying to cover themselves, because they feel unworthy to be connected to God. And guilt and shame are very much a part of their story. And, and Satan, the, the deceiver, the, the, the enemy, he wants to use that shame to twist our identity in the way that we relate to one another, in the, in the way that we relate to ourselves, and in the way that we relate to God. Because he knows that we were designed by God for God, for relationship with him, and for relationship with one another. It's like Augustine has said, your soul is restless until it finds rest in God. And that restlessness looks like we're, we're clamoring and searching and scurrying around to try to find something that we can fill that whole relationship with God or relationship with others. And so even in the garden, God had a rescue plan. Even then, God was working for rescue and redemption and renewal of relationship, a relationship with him, a relationship with one another, just like he does today. And that's very much what God is doing in the world today, is that he wants to bring you home to the city of God, to reconnect you to his purposes, and he wants to give you back in your life everything the enemy has taken from you. Your freedom, your purpose, your joy, your identity. You see that in the garden. You see it today that God is saying you can live free from guilt and shame. They do not have to be of your story one more day. But before we get too far down the road, we, we got to talk about shame and guilt and what they are because a lot of times they get lumped together, but, they are, but there are differences in the two of those things. Guilt is a normal, healthy emotion that lets you know when you have violated your sense of right and wrong. What what guilt does is it allows you to hold up something that you've done against your values and your morals and feel psychological discomfort. Guilt is is the position of being accountable for our sins, 
our rebellion against God. It's a, it's a legal term. So like in a framework of justice, you have to take accountability and responsibility for decisions and choices that you make that are counter to the standard of God. Now, shame, on the other hand, is the process of being defined by our sin and all the ways that we fall short. It is the intensely painful experience of believing that we really are flawed and unworthy of love and belonging. It's the experience of seeing ourselves as having failed to live up to the idealized version of ourselves. When you have those feelings of like, there, there's something wrong with me beyond repair. I'm, I'm unworthy. No one can love me. I cannot belong to anyone. You see the difference? So, so guilt is this positional thing. Because of my sin, I'm in a position of being accountable and responsible for my decisions. That's guilt. Shame takes it a step further where shame says, yes, legally I'm guilty, but now I'm in the process of reshaping my identity, who I am based on my failure, based on my sin. Shame is this feeling, this sense of exposed failure before someone else and defining yourself based on that failure. So you've got a legal state of being as one and the other is an emotional or mental state of being. It's like the difference between admitting, yes, I've done some stupid things versus saying, no, I'm, I'm just stupid. When guilt prompts you to ask for and receive forgiveness. Shame prompts you to hide from God and others, and it refuses to be forgiven. With shame, you cling to your unworthiness and reject the message of the gospel, that is, that in Christ there is no condemnation, that we're called to love others as we've been loved in Jesus. But the pathway out of both of those is the same. It's grace. Grace is the unmerited, unearned, unobligated favor of God given to undeserving sinners. Now, a lot of times grace is just kind of one of those words that just kind of get thrown around and we just, I mean, it can mean anything from words you say before you eat to this powerful thing that we sing about. But, but, but grace isn't some weak, powerless concept. It ultimately destroys the power of sin in our lives. It, it cancels guilt. The grace of God moves in and through the life and work of Jesus, and it sets us free. You get, a, you get a picture of this, a preview in Isaiah in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's really amazing because we see how God wants to work in our lives and to take guilt away. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll put the text up on the screen. It says this in, in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, so they're like these angelic beings, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. When you see holy, holy, holy in triplicate there in the scripture, it's really trying to confirm and really trying to solidify the holiness or the other thanness of God. The total uniqueness of God. There's nothing like him, nothing like our Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorsteps and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah appropriately responds, woe to me. I'm ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord 
Almighty. The prophet Isaiah sees the Lord. He has a vision of heaven. He sees the holiness of God, the beauty of God. And he says, woe to me. Because instantly he sees the gap of who he is and who God is. And immediately he cries out, I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. Because I've seen the king and I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what Isaiah is ultimately pointing us towards is this. The way that we get guilt canceled in our lives is that we understand that there is a finished work of Jesus on the cross and we step in to receive that finished work by faith, supplied by God, by the act of repentance, which is where we say, wow, I have fallen short of God's holy standard. I have fallen short of what God intended and God desires us best. I admit it. I take responsibility for it. I realize that I'm accountable for my choices and my sin and my rebellion before Almighty God. That's what Isaiah does. That's what he gets. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And immediately God goes into motion with his rescue plan and starts moving towards a repentant Isaiah. And repentance, a lot of times we think of as a negative thing, but it's a positive thing. It's a gift of God. It's a doorway that opens up where, where God comes to us by grace to do what none of us could do in and of ourselves. Look, look at verse 6 in Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And when he touched my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the scene is this, Isaiah's here, he, he sees the holiness of God, the beauty of God, and he's feeling like he's finished. But repentance opens a doorway for the restoring power of God. The angel arrives not to exterminate Isaiah, but to exterminate his guilt. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, we see another live burning coal from heaven come down who was the Holy One of God himself, Jesus Christ. He's pure, holy, righteous to give his life, to bring freedom to everyone who acknowledges their hopelessness and their helplessness and bridging the gap from their sin to God's holiness. And, and, and he could say to them what the angel said to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for because of the great exchange that happened in the courthouse of heaven where we were guilty and accountable for our sinful choices and Jesus who is innocent and pure, God took our guilt and sin and put it on Jesus so that he could put his righteousness and innocence and transfer it to our account so that we justly could be set free by a holy and righteous God and we could walk free of guilt with all of our debt paid for because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. There had to be a legal transaction. There had to be something that would stand up in the court of law under the scrutiny of the righteousness and justice of God. That's why Jesus was the only one who could come to bear the guilt and sin and the shame and therefore, God could declare that you and I are guilt-free, forgiven, and can walk free and enter into brand new life. That's what John's talking about in 1 John 1.9. He's writing to new believers. He's trying to help them understand the gospel. He says this. He says, if we confess our sins, that word confess, that's a word that means I'm going to say the same thing about my sin that God says. God has a certain word about your sin, about your rebellion. I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to say the same thing about it that it steals life, that it, that it takes me towards a, to a place of death and destruction, that it's, that it's outright rebellion against the king. 
I'm going to confess that sin. And John says, when you do that, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So our confession, our acknowledgement of being accountable for our sin frees God and he moves towards us in the finished work of Christ and he cancels our guilt. So when the enemy comes to you, and he will, when the deceiver comes to you, and he will, he might say something like, oh, okay, maybe you're going to go to heaven when you die, but I'm going I'm to make your life here on earth living hell. He says, because I'm going to book you on a guilt trip. And some of you, you've, you've been on that boat for a long time, even though you've already been pronounced free at the cross of Christ. But the thing about Satan is that he never does. He never stops. He's always coming at you. I'll talk you down and bring you the details of your past life back to you. And he'll convince you, he'll convince you that if you just keep it hidden, that somehow it will go away, but it never does. The only way that you can walk free is to step into the light with God and say, I've done some things and I've had some things done to me that have made me feel ashamed, worthless, damaged. But yet I know that freedom has been pronounced over me and the message of my beat my guilt being canceled is received because God wants to book you on a different trip. God says, get off the guilt trip and let's take a trip to the cross because that's where you find freedom. So grace cancels our guilt, but it also redefines us. Grace ultimately cancels your guilt, but it also redefines you because it redefines you from failure to family. That's the miracle of grace. It, it redefines you. It redefines your today. It redefines your tomorrow. And it moves you from failure to family. Because God changes the narrative of our lives. And he makes our story the story of sons and daughters in the family of God. And the Bible tells us that because of Jesus, we're a son or daughter of God and an heir to everything that God has. We've been written into the will, invited to the plan and purpose of God. There's a seat for us at the table First John, he talks about this. He says that, look, if you deny that you sin, it makes you a liar. And it means that you walk away from the freedom that God is offering to us. And you live eternally under the weight of guilt that Jesus has canceled. In the next chapter, he says that for those of us who do confess our sins, you're, you're children of God. In chapter 3, he says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's who we are. Paul writes about this too in the book of Galatians. He's writing a letter to the church at Galatia in chapter 4. He says it this way. He says, When time had fully come, God sent his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because we are sons or daughters, God sent his spirit into our hearts, and the spirit cries out, Abba, Father. It's this intense, uh, intimate phrasing. Of a, of, a, of, a, of a parent and child. It's this, this really unique closeness. And Paul is saying the spirit of God resonates with your spirit to confirm who you really are. And then Paul goes on, he says, and since you're no longer a slave, but his child, and since his child, God's made you an heir. So grace didn't just cancel the guilt, which would have been amazing, is amazing, but yet grace redefines me as a family member and a friend of almighty God. And what you see in the New Testament for the follower of Jesus is that your primary identity, who you are, your true self is found in who you are in Christ and not in all the ways that you've disrupted the, the wholeness or the completeness, the shalom of the relationship. 
The first word about you is that you're created in the image of God. You're crowned with glory and honor. You are, the imprint of divinity is on you. You are prized by majesty. You have incredible intrinsic worth and value because you are made in the image of God, a child of the divine. The second word is an important word, though. It is the honest, unvarnished truth about how we all fall short. We all sin. We all rebel against a holy God. And we disrupt the shalom that God intends for all things. Romans 3 goes into great detail about that. The final word about you, however, is that the last word has already been spoken about you and your sin. That it's all been taken care of by Jesus and peace has been made with God through the cross. That you've been restored and redeemed and reconciled and renewed. And as a Christian, this is what's so amazing. You are invited to live like that's actually true. You can walk in that. You can live in and out of that. And you can let that truth, you can let that word shape you and mold you and transform you into a Jesus-centered person who brings the love and the hope of Jesus everywhere you go. That life is available for you. How does that happen as it pertains to shame? Three things, real quick, we're going to end with. There's three things that you use to battle shame in your life. The first is courage. The courage of confession. The courage of confession. You see, you neutralize the power of shame in your life when you are brave enough to bring your sin into the light. You see, shame loves secrecy, darkness, and isolation. And the way that you fight shame is by being authentic about your experiences. Again, 1 John 1, 5-7, this is the message that we've heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how much sin? All. You need courage to bring your sin into the light and watch shame lose its power on your life. The first thing you need is the courage of confession. The second thing you need is compassion. Compassion is the human caring response to suffering for others and for yourself. But a lot of times when we're in shame, we don't show that compassion to ourselves. Compassion was at the core of Christ's way of being. If you were with us during that Love Walked Among Us series, we saw that in every interaction that he had, how compassion was a thread that just weaved through the life of Jesus. And so we need to learn to discipline ourselves to hear and to speak the kindness of God to yourself and rely on the truth of Scripture about your worth and God's grace in your, in your life. One of the things uh, my friend Tyler is one of the pastors here always says, saying when in these moments like this, we often are listening to ourselves. And it's, it's often this rhetoric of you're broken, you're ashamed, no one's going to accept you, there's no way you can be forgiven for this. He said, instead of listening to yourself, talk to yourself and speak the words of compassion of what Jesus says over you. Speak to yourself the truth of the gospel 
We're going to sing it in just a moment. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we need courage of confession. We need compassion. And lastly, we need connection. We are biologically hardwired for connection. That's how God has made us and created us. And shame steals that from you because it makes you try to hide or try to fake it. And shame depends on secrecy and hiding, so it loses its power when you reach out and share your stories and realize that we are all in this together. A lot of times we have this kind of false dichotomy where we think, well, there's a group of people over here, and those are the people who help other people, and then there's a group of people over here, and those are the people who need help. And I'm not in the help other camp. I'm also, I'm always in the we need, I need help camp. But the truth is we're both of those things at the same time. And when you come to that realization, that, that truth, that reality, you can have real connection with one another. And, and this is where you have to look at Jesus. In the scriptures, you see how he treats people, how he behaves towards them, how uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, he has this interaction with, with the rich young ruler. And it's a young man who comes to him and he says, what must I do um, for, for, for life with you, um, for eternal life? And, and he says, well, I've kept all the rules. And then Jesus says, okay, go and sell all your things and care for the poor. And the Bible says that the rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. But there's a, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, there's a verse you probably just kind of glanced over, just kind of not really paid attention to, but it's this phrase that says this, Jesus looking at him loved him. He knew, he, he knew the struggle that this young man had, was going through. Jesus looked at him, loved him. And in the pages of the New Testament, you constantly, constantly see Jesus trying to overcome this inner monologue that we all have, and, and he's shouting over us, I see you, I see all of you, I see your shame, I love you. You see it when Jesus has an interaction with Zacchaeus, the wee little man, wee little man was he, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. They hated him. They hated him. Nobody wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus. He has to scurry up into a tree just so he can get a shot at seeing Jesus. But Jesus is the one that goes to him. He's like, you, you, I want to be with you. I want to have dinner at your house. I want to be with you. There's the interaction with the Samaritan woman. She's an outcast on the outskirts of town. And they get into this discussion about her past. And then she tries to change the subject by kind of talking about, well, you know, some people say there's going to be worship that's going to happen at that moment. And what Jesus does, he stops her and he says, look, the Messiah is here right now, eyeball to eyeball with you. And you too are free to worship him. There's the woman who's caught in adultery, guilty, caught, the scripture says, not accused of, caught caught in adultery. Religious leaders all bring her together, and rightly so. They say her punishment is death, and they pick up large stones, and they're getting ready to throw this whole heap of stones on this woman and give her the punishment that she deserves because of her guilt. And Jesus, who's brilliant, he bends down, writes something in the sand. We have no idea what he writes there. But then he just simply says this, any of you who's without sin, in other words, any of you who are not guilty, you go ahead you throw the first stone. The Bible says they all leave. And he says to her, he said, where's everybody that would condemn you? She says, they all split. He says that I don't condemn you either. Now go. Freedom. 
What do you think Jesus is going to say to you when you're busted? When you're guilty? How do you think he's going to respond to you? One last story. It's in John chapter 21. It's of the apostle Peter. I love this story. If you're not familiar with the scriptures or, you know, Jesus had these followers. They were disciples. They were learners from him. And Peter was one of his most passionate followers. And Peter was a former fisherman. Jesus says to him, come, I'm going to, you're going to live life with me. I'm going to show you the ways of life. And they go for three years spending all this time together. But then at the moment of Jesus' greatest need, as he's been arrested and wrongly convicted, he's being tortured and eventually crucified and murdered, it's there that Peter denies three times that he even knows Jesus. And he's absolutely distraught. He flees the scene and he goes back to his old life as a fisherman. And Jesus hunts him down and invites him to have breakfast with him on the shores of the beach. Now, what do you think Jesus would, would say to you if that was you? He asked Peter one question. He says it three different ways, but he only asked him one question. He's essentially saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than all this other stuff? Now, there's consequences to our failure. We're still talking about Peter's denial. That's still in the, the record books of humanity. And Jesus isn't sweeping things under the rug. That's not how it works. But he's not riveted to our consequences. He really is wanting to restore us and our identity. He's saying grace has taken away the guilt, but grace has redefined you from failure to friend and family of the God Almighty. He invites Peter to breakfast not to interrogate him, but just to ask him, do you love me? In this moment, Jesus has already paid for Peter's sin. It was done and finished, and he triumphed over it by his resurrection. But he knew that Peter was still marked by the shame, and he wanted to redefine it for him that day. So what is Jesus saying to you today? I think he's saying, I know about your past. I know what you've done. And I know what was done to you. And I know how ashamed you are because of it. I think he's saying, I know how it's defined you. I know how it's made you think that that's who you are, that you're someone who's broken and damaged beyond repair. And I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you're mine, that's not who you are. Jesus is saying, if you're mine, you are a beloved son or daughter. And that status is never at risk. Jesus is asking, do you love me more? Do you love me? And if your answer is yes, he's going to be like, that's great. Because I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to be a leader in my church. I want you to love people the way that I love you. And the invitation is that you will not live defined by your shame. You will live a life defined by your Savior. And so this morning, you can get off the guilt trip and get on a journey to the cross. And we do that in our time of communion. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, I thank you for your amazing grace that we sing about. And God, I'm praying in these next few moments, um, 
that as we take the bread and the cup, that we would truly, truly taste it. And God, we, um, we've spent days and weeks, months, maybe even years, maybe a lifetime of believing a lie that we are too far gone and that we are too broken, too damaged, unwanted. And God, I just pray that right now, by the power of your spirit, God, you just break through, like break through in a crazy way. And God, that you would speak freedom and life to sons and daughters in this room. And that today, God, that you might use today as a real turning point in their life. And they would walk in freedom in the identity of how loved they are by you. And that the power of shame would not have one more moment in their life, in their story. And God, that this gospel that we preach and we sing about, we talk about, would not just be an idea, but that there would be a real personal relationship with you, Jesus. We love you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.